Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. Today, we are continuing with our latest uh, mini-series on tax with Simon Howley and Andrew Thornhill QC, and we're going to be concentrating on trusts today. So I've definitely got some questions on, on trusts. I'm a bit confused by several things, so I guess hopefully you will help me understand these. My first question is, when you put a property or shares of a business into a trust, do you realise the capital gains tax on those? And if so, who is it that pays it if the donor is still alive or if the donor is dead? Okay, well, if the donor is alive, then any transfer of an asset to a trust uh, will be a capital gains tax disposal. Of course, the asset in question may not be, it might just be cash, for example, on which you don't pay any capital gains tax. But if it is a capital gains tax asset, it is a disposal and a complete disposal of the whole asset, even if the donor retains some interest under the trust. So it's not a terribly nice starting point for creating a trust that you've got to pay some capital gains tax. However, two points could be made. One is that if you throw the burden of capital gains tax on the trustees, suppose they've got some wherewithal to pay, that does reduce the value transferred for inheritance tax, which might be useful. But much more important, certain kinds of assets qualify for what they call holdover relief mainly business assets and agricultural property. So you don't, in fact, pay the capital gains tax. Instead, the trustees inherit your capital gains tax position. And then one final point, if the creation of a trust is a chargeable transfer, note chargeable transfer, not a potentially exempt one, then you can hold over the gain on that subject to certain conditions. The same thing applies. You don't pay the capital gains tax. It's inherited by the donee. And then you mentioned if the donor is dead. Well, of course, one of the important point is if you die, you get a tax-free capital gains tax uplift on death. So if by your will you settle property, you will pay inheritance tax, but you won't pay capital gains tax. But for example, suppose the asset is a business asset or agricultural property. If you get 100% relief Mm. for inheritance tax, you might as well retain the asset till your death because you get the free uplift for capital gains tax. So I hope that answers your question to a certain extent. But if it doesn't, Simon is leaping in to fill the gaps. Yeah, as, as, Andrew, as Andrew mentioned, if it's chargeable to IHT, then you can you can hold over in a capital gain section two hundred and sixty from memory. So that's, that's quite it's quite useful to say if you if you had a a client or we'll call him John, let's say had a property that's worth three hundred twenty five thousand pounds, so equal to his nil rate band for IHT purposes. If you just he wanted to gift that, say, to his partner, Jenny, if you gifted it to, to her directly, he'd obviously have tax to pay on that because it's a, a transfer. But if he gifted it into, say, a trust, he can hold over any capital gain. It is chargeable uh, going into trust, albeit at 0%. And then maybe in a few years' time, he could then gift it back out of the trust, or the trustees could, uh, to his partner, again, hold over and again again. So therefore, yes, he gets yes. into his partner's hands with no IHT charge and no capital gains tax charge. That's, a, that's a good point. Because they are the, inherit the, the value that uh, John paid for the property at the time. Yes, that, that's where a trust is actually a real benefit, isn't it? Yes. So that's a, that's a useful way of getting assets. It could be shares, yeah. yes. not necessarily oh, yeah. uh, property, but into the hands of adult child or someone who's not your spouse. So 
I know we um, talked about in the previous episodes, episode 22 and 24. So if the listeners haven't listened to those, please do, because we go into much more detail on potentially exempt transfers and also chargeable transfers as well. So if people don't know what those are, uh, those mean and go back and have a listen to those previous episodes but yeah that's um that's very very helpful and has definitely helped me understand in uh, what the benefits are really so another question i've got is there seem to be several different types of trusts so discretionary bear trust are the two are the two main ones that i kind of see crop up most of the time what are some of the different types of trusts and how are they taxed in terms of holding them because I, th- I think I read somewhere that certain trusts are taxed at six percent of the uh, capital yeah. gain every six uh, every 10 years sorry so is there a big difference between the different types of trusts and how they are taxed? Uh, well I think there is yes and you, you've really got to divide it up depending on the different tax I mean basically as far as capital gains tax is concerned you're basically looking at the trustees and not interested in the beneficiaries by and large But when it comes to inheritance tax, it does make a difference, and also to income tax. In the old days, before 2006, you could divide trusts up for inheritance tax to three kinds, bear trusts, I'll come back to those later, interest in possession trusts, and discretionary trusts where no one had an interest in possession. You can still have interest in possession trust. For example, you can create them on death in favor of a surviving spouse. But generally speaking, most trusts now constitute what, are called, what is called relevant property. And the result is that even if a person has an interest in possession, if you created a trust like that, the trust still constitutes relevant property. And therefore, the trust property is charged to tax every 10 years. And the rate of charge is six and two thirds percent, which is 30% of the lifetime rate. The theory behind that charge is this. If people keep assets out of trusts, then they tend to pay inheritance tax once every 30 years. So the theory is with these trusts that you you pay the equivalent of 20% over over 30 years, i.e. you pay a third every 10 years. So that's that. If you do have a genuine interest in possession trust, that's say, for example, a life interest in favor of a surviving spouse or a pre-2006 charge, The situation is completely different. The property is treated as effectively owned by the beneficiary with an interest in possession. So if he dies, the property in the trust forms part of his estate. But that's now getting rarer. And then we do have this thing called bear trusts, which are actually quite handy. People tend to um, have, in, in the past, underestimated them. That's where you simply give property to a trustee to hold absolutely for someone else. But what people don't forget is that, uh, tend to forget, you can give the trustee all sorts of interesting powers, for example, a power to borrow. If the trustee borrows on the property, it's virtually impossible for the beneficiary then to say, give me the property, because you've got to pay off the loan. So effectively, you're having the same effect as a trust without creating a more complex trust. Sometimes these trusts are quite handy. For example, creating a bear trust is a pet. So you don't pay inheritance tax, which so that can be very handy. Okay, that's, that's now income tax wise, it's different. Basically, for income tax, you either have a trust which where people don't have a right to income or they do have a right to income. If they have a right to income, then the beneficiary is taxed on the income as though it was his. If they don't have a right to income, then the trustees have to pay tax at a rather nasty high rate called the trust rate. And then if the money is handed over to a beneficiary, you have to try and get the tax back. Not very attractive and quite um, quite complex to run, but that's uh, you need a professional trustee to grasp it all, probably. Well, we've talked in, in the previous episodes about growth shares and, and freezer shares. Yeah. 
when passing on shares in a property company yeah. or maybe a property investment company. What benefits, if any, would there be in put or why might a person decide to put their property business into a trust rather than to do what we took what we talked about previously with the gross shares? Well, um, one thing he might want to do is say to himself, look, I've got a £325,000 nil rate band, which revives every seven years. So why don't I put property to that value into a trust every seven years and gradually give away my assets? That's quite a sensible thing to do. And um, there was a time, it's now gone, unfortunately, where you could exploit those rules and put very valuable property into a whole series of nil-rate band trusts. That's gone. Although I would mention, probably we'll come back to it at a later time, with insurance policies where the donor, the set law is paying the premiums, but the policy is settled in a trust, you can still create a whole number of separate trusts which all enjoy the nil rate band. So where you want, say, to insure your life rather than give away your assets, the policy could be relatively free of tax on your death, which could be quite attractive. But that's just another reason for creating a whole series of nil rate band trusts. But generally speaking, Yes, every seven years, if you're wealthy enough, you should always be saying to yourself, can I give something away and use up my nil rate band? It would be very sensible. And can you still benefit from the income that... No, uh, yeah. this is, a, no, this is, this is uh, of course, the, the rub. However, with things like shares in a company, the law is actually relatively generous. So if you give away the shares... You can't start taking the dividends from the shares you've given away. But suppose the company wants to pay you a nice bonus because you've done rather well for the company that year. That isn't a benefit reserved unless perhaps it's so extravagant as to be insupportable. So although you've given away the shares, there are ways in which quite fairly you can get something back without it being a disaster. When um, doing what you suggested, putting £325,000 worth in every seven years, I imagine then the uh, capital gains rule would apply every 10 years where you'd be paying the 6% on that as well. Every every 10 years. But, but you see, so long as you you kept the property within the nil rate band, Mm -hmm. there wouldn't be any tax. That would, that's the attraction. Right. There, there would have been no tax going in, and, and therefore, unless the property increases substantially in value, the 6% charge, although theoretically there, in fact, doesn't apply. Quite attractive. Yeah, definitely. My okay. cost of charge anyway, every 10 years, is, is for uh, IHT, not to cover against tax. Uh, yeah, sorry, yes, mm-hmm. quite absolutely right. I should have said that. Yeah, sorry, I don't inheritance know. tax. Not there's no capital gains tax. Once you're in the trust, unless you dispose of the asset, you can forget about it. And so, if you have beneficiaries of the trust do not benefit from income or capital of the trust until a certain age, so for example, if you, if, if the beneficiaries are, are minors, does the trust then pay tax on any profits that the assets are generating within that trust whilst no income is being distributed? In 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 the same way, a company might pay corporation tax. Yes, Yes, if if income arises within the trust, it would be uh, accumulated if it was a minor um, without being paid before it was paid out. And so you would actually pay the the trust rate of tax on it, which would be reasonably expensive. Okay. 25%. The trustees only get a £1,000 basic rate band. Yes. So the fact that the trustees will be taxed as if an individual with a £150,000 annual income, in effect, is is, is a tax rate. So from my very limited discussion with you then on this so far, what I'm kind of leaning toward is if, uh, and we've talked about uh, business property relief before on the previous podcast, and that's obviously very, very beneficial. It seems that 
one of the, the, the best ways of uh, putting a property business or a property investment business into pass down through generations might be then to hold it until death so that there's no inheritance tax on that and then that gets you can transfer that into trust at that point is that well no 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 hang on hang on that's going to be all right for capital gains tax but if it's a property business you're not going to have any reliefs unless you've done something clever you remember in a previous podcast we suggested burying non-qualifying assets in a holding company which yes. did qualify but let's assume you haven't done that you've got a property business then you have got the problem that on your death there's going to be inheritance tax now, there may be two approaches to that, because if you're just a minority holder in your property business, you may well say, well, I don't really care if I pay a bit of inheritance tax, because I'm going to get a massive discount on the asset value in valuing my shares. But of course, if you're a majority holder, 51% or more, certainly 75% or more, where you can liquidate the company, then you've got a full assets valuation and life isn't going to be very pleasant unless perhaps you give it to your surviving spouse and and hope that she can make gifts during her lifetime, uh, which don't um, give rise to too much inheritance tax. Of course, you may also want to skip generations. Yes, indeed. Your grandchildren, you may want your adult children to benefit from the income, but not risk the capital. You may get divorced, which is quite common these days. There's there's many non-tax issues also with trusts. So so what do you think are, what seem to be a, a, a big reason that you find that people decide to put their assets into trust rather than incorporating and, and, and passing down shares then? Well, I think the main reason historically is most people are a little reluctant to give property away absolutely to children. And of course, the great virtue of a trust, which is why they were formed in the first place, is that you keep control over the asset, but it doesn't belong to you. So that is the, is the basic attraction. And... Um, Equally, of course, if you're, if the assets are, do, don't qualify for any inheritance tax release, then giving them away during your lifetime in the appropriate way will be a lot cheaper than waiting till you die. So you've, you've planned your inheritance tax, but you haven't given away absolute control. In fact, quite the contrary, by having yourself as a trustee, there's no reason why you can't be a trustee if you're in trust. You keep control. You keep the management, but you've given away the problem with the tax. So I think that's why most people, in historically over the last 40 or 50 years, have resorted to trusts. Okay. And if shares are held in a trust and, yeah. those, and those shares benefit from dividends, how is that um, money extracted from the trust? Do they have to pay the trustee tax of 45%? Well, well, the the trustees will have paid tax or will pay tax on dividends. And then if they make them available to beneficiaries, the beneficiaries, if they pay a lower rate of tax, may be able to get some of that tax back. Alternatively, um, you could appoint some form of interest in favour of a beneficiary, which now doesn't have any effect for inheritance tax because it's still treated as relevant property. And as a result, the beneficiary becomes entitled as a right to the dividend, and that means you don't pay the trust rate and you may pay a lower rate straight away. So that's certainly something you could think of. Also, however, you won't forget that maybe instead of paying dividends, you should sell an asset and repay some capital, cash in some redeemable preference shares, there'll be capital gains tax, then you'll have a distribution. But the capital gains tax might be cheaper than paying the income tax. You have to think of all these things. If you you have a parent, of course, giving, um, say, shares to uh, a minor, then obviously you're going to invoke the settlements legislation so it's going to be the parent that will pay the tax on that anyway but if you if you invested for capital growth um, there is no equivalent uh, legislation for capital so each individual child will still be entitled to the annual exemption yes yes which might be a better way of giving them cash than paying a dividend yeah mm, yeah that's an interesting point with trustees then so when you obviously appoint the trustees 
Is there anything to stop them, obviously, acting in a way of personal gain, I suppose, is... is, is well, I mean, the short answer is the law of trusts. I mean, they're not supposed to, and trustees shouldn't put themselves in a position where their own interests and their duty as trustees conflict. Of course, the cases are littered with examples of trustees who have stepped over the mark, mm. and um, they'll be called to account in the courts. Of course, that can be quite an expensive exercise. I mean, I, I've seen cases where, in the case of big employee benefit trusts, literally millions of pounds have had to be spent, usually with the benefit of litigation funds, to get the money back. But I mean, in principle, trustees have got to act in the interests of beneficiaries and can't act in their own, in their own interests. But you do have to be careful. I mean, it, it's, it's, I mean, for example, you can be a trustee of your own trust. But you've got to be very careful that, the, mm. that your duty as trustees and self-interest uh, don't conflict. For example, um, you might say, I think I deserve a huge bonus from the company. Trustees might say, well, what about paying a dividend? And there, there you have a conflict straight away. Yeah. And then what scenarios might it be best to incorporate a property business and transfer the shares to a trust rather than the assets themselves? And vice versa, maybe. Now, if you incorporate a business, we've gone over this in a previous podcast, of course, you do get a very advantageous capital gains tax result. But the gain on the properties which you've transferred to the companies effectively lies dormant within the shares. So um, if you give the shares away, there's going to be a capital gains tax charge. Of course, you might only give away shares as a part of a minority holding, in which case the shares could be very severely discounted, so that even though their capital gains tax cost is low, the penalty of putting them in the trust is not actually very great. So that could be an advantageous thing to do. I think it, it would depend a lot on the circumstances. I mean, basically, if you were a 100% owner of a business and incorporated it for shares and then gave away the shares, you would really want to be getting holdover relief for capital gains tax. Otherwise, it wouldn't be worth doing it. But of course, you could get holdover relief if you simply gave away shares up to the value of an ill-rate band that's a chargeable transfer, although no tax is actually paid, and you can hold over the gain. So that could be quite attractive. Like you say, the, the gain is, is, doesn't vanish when you incorporate, it's just it yeah. rests with the shares. So people tend to think that, uh, oh, it's gone now. But obviously, once you start to transfer, transfer is a sale, it's a disposal. So people need to keep that in mind. So there's no point incorporating and then suddenly oh, I think I'll transfer some shares to my children because you're going to re-trigger the gain you've deferred. Now, obviously, if, if it's structured correctly, you could, you could possibly get to hold a relief into the trust. But again, then you, have, you may trigger the settlement legislation for income tax. So you need to think about it in the whole, basically. You, you could create a, a big problem for yourself. But with planning, you could probably transfer it into a trust, hold the gain over, maybe restrict the income entitlement of the beneficiaries, your children, maybe only pay out capital gains or, or capital sums. Um, if you accumulated the income until they were 18 then, and then paid out then, that's a good way of paying for your university fees. So there's lots you can do, but there's many pitfalls if you try to do things too quickly. Yes, I think a point does occur to me. If you wanted to incorporate the business, say for interest relief purposes, and also because it has a capital gains tax advantage, it uplifts the value of the property in the company, you could consider forming a company on day one and giving, say, 20% of the shares to your children. And then, in, and having incorporated the company, you then incorporate your business for 80% of the shares. Now, you'll get your incorporation relief for capital gains tax. There will be a chargeable transfer because effectively you've given 20% of the value to your children. But it might be more advantageous to do it that way because you, I think, would save capital gains tax on the gift of the children. 
that might be a possibility. If you talk about uh, a minority shareholding, it's, it's not 20% of the value of the company because you would no. normally discount that between 45 and 60% the value. At least some, sometimes even more. A yeah. very small holding might even be virtually valueless. It depends on the voting rights, income rights, capital rights within the Articles of Association. So yes. yes, that's right. Very good point. From what I've kind of gathered then so far, if uh, someone is trying to leave a property business to their children and uh, it stops there at that generation, then obviously business property relief, um, if they can fit that, seems seems very sensible. But if they're trying to leave their business for several generations ongoing, then one thing that I think sounds sort of sensible to me would be the growth growth shares scenario, but possibly without uh, putting those growth shares into trust rather than just down to the uh, passing on to the next generation due to things like divorce, which we discussed earlier. Am I I on the right lines with that? Yes, I think think there's something to be said for that. The only proviso which I would make is that when the value of growth shares and the effect they have for inheritance tax does depend to a very large extent on the nature of a business. If, for example, you gave away some shares in a family trading company I mean, the company might not be there in 20 years' time. Its business might have become obsolete, etc., etc. But with property, um, leaving aside the disasters that might have been happening recently, um, giving away the growth shares is actually giving away quite a large slice of the value. So you've got to be careful about what the effect is for inheritance tax. The gift may be a bigger gift than you think, especially if you've got a majority holding. That's not to say you can't do it, but it's something you've got to bear in mind. And then should, if that's the case, then would it be, would it be better, as we discussed before, to do that on death rather than... Well, no, because you see, if you wait until death, then you've got... You, one thing is certain, as uh, someone once said, death and taxes. And one thing is certain, if you die, if you're going to pay inheritance tax. Except that, um, unless, of course, you leave the shares to a surviving spouse, which you could do. Right, so but you, then she's got the same problem then that you had how to how to give it away without having too large a tax charge. So if it was already incorporated, then you could give those shares away and and, and it applied for and if and, and it fit the bill for business property relief. Then would it be best to to wait until death? It it, it did. You say it did. It did qualify. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, that. Well, then there's no. That there's no need to rush. No, absolutely right. Having something that qualifies for BPR is a very, very great thing. And yeah. just bear in mind, many people who have property assets in property companies also often have a business, or there's a business in the family somewhere. And it could be advantageous to swap the assets over so that the older person has the asset qualifying for BPR and the younger people have the assets that don't. And interestingly, it's worth just saying, within a trust, um, you can often reassemble the benefits. You can, you, you can give the property not qualifying for relief to younger people and give qualified property that does qualify to older people without there being a capital gains tax charge. Normally, of course, between adults, outside of trust, if I give you one asset and you take the other in exchange, you've both made disposals. And, that's, and that happens within the trust? If it happens within a trust, if there's a, some power within the trust to allocate assets in a particular way, then it can be very beneficial. I mean, for example, suppose you had an old-fashioned trust with an interest in possession, and the interest in possession, as matters stood, was in shares in a property company. But also within the trust, there is, say, a farm, 
which a younger member of the family is farming. Well, what you should try and do is put the farm into the interest and possession part of the trust and take the non-qualifying property assets out and let them be enjoyed by the son. He can still go on farming the farm, but in terms of inheritance tax, you've allocated the relief where you want it most. And would uh, would they still have to pay stamp duty as there's a transfer there, or would it be... Um, no, if that was done within a trust, there, I, there wouldn't be any stamp duty, no. Well, that's very... It's all done within the umbrella of a trust. Actually, that you've hit a, a very interesting point. Trusts can contain a variety of assets, some qualifying and some not qualifying for relief, and you can play some interesting games without paying any tax in the process. Well, something's just clicked really for me there in terms of, um, of, of BPR, because I always used to think that certain properties and property businesses, so if you've got an investment business and a trading business, it's good to have them separated so that you can strengthen leases and, and reduce risk. But actually, it seems that for inheritance reasons, it's the opposite. And if you can actually get the trading business aligned with the um, property to own it, then qualifying that for BPR can, can be very advantageous. In a group structure. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it could be. I mean, it, the, it's a very interesting area you're now in because in the old days and still today, most accountants would say, for heaven's sake, make it absolutely clear what is property development trading, and what is, on the other hand, property investment. Don't confuse the two, or you could end up with the whole thing being trading. On the other hand, although you keep the two separate, sometimes if you've got both, you can play some interesting games, mm. as, long as, you, as long as it's quite clear which is the trade and which isn't. And I think that's what Simon was just getting out in terms of the holding company. Yes. By the way, um, purely dealing in land doesn't qualify for business property relief, but doing development work, building and all that sort of stuff does. That, that, that takes you over the line. And of course, if you get a BPR relief anyway on, say, shares that you hold, um, it allows you to do deathbed planning. So in effect, you have a rights issue. Um, a rights issue, in effect, is where you can issue uh, new shares that sit in, they stand in, in, in the shoes of the old shares. So they inherit the, the ownership period. Yes. So, you know, I you think we, we did that, didn't we, Simon, in one of the previous podcasts. It's yes. an incredibly valuable way of saving inheritance tax, buying in a business almost at the last gasp but provided you own the underlying shares for two years, you qualify for BPR. I expect it'll go one day, but it's still there at the moment. Yeah, so you could have somebody who, who, who buys some shares, a rights issue on a Monday for a million pound in cash. Yes, that's she it. dies on the Wednesday, but yes. of course because of her new rights issue shares are treated as if are the same as her old shares, she held them for that two-year period. She saved a million pound. Quite right. It's the... One of the most valuable bits of planning you can do. Very interesting, yeah. So, is there any? What are some of the other uh, parts in, in trust then that we haven't gone over? That well, we haven't looked very much at the moment at bear trusts. And the the, the nice thing about bear trusts is that um, they're potentially exempt transfers. So, if you survive seven years, you make a gift or something. You don't pay inheritance tax. Of course, you may have to pay capital gains tax because you can't hold it over generally under Section 260, which Simon mentioned, because that only applies to chargeable transfers and a pet isn't a chargeable transfer. Um, nevertheless, it might be a business asset where you can hold over it again anyhow. So these could be very attractive ways of giving away shares in a business. And by doing it gradually over over the years, you could give away a great deal very safely. Now, you may say, ah, but I don't want to give away shares absolutely because um, I don't trust whoever it is to play the game. But the fact of the matter is, if it's minority holdings in companies, they're virtually unsaleable anyhow. 
Mm. So there isn't much risk. And as I said earlier, if it's something like a share in land, that doesn't give an automatic right to force a sale unless it's a majority holding. Alternatively, you might impose in the bare trust a power in the trustee to borrow. And the borrowing effectively means that the beneficiary can't force a sale because he's got to, well, he, he's got to get the borrowing repaid if he wants to get hold of the asset. So effectively, you tie it up quite well. And can the beneficiary then arrange to refinance that asset in order to... Well, he could. He, yes, if he said to the trustee, look, I know you've got this loan, but I'm going to come along and replace it, then, then I think the trustee would have to give it up. He can't, he can't insist on holding it holding on to it. So in terms of control, it's uh, a discretionary trust may be better. Um, well, yes, except, of course, with a company, you can play all sorts of games. You might give away non-voting shares. Then he got, he got no control. You kept all the votes. The very interesting question, incidentally, is suppose I own all the voting shares in a company. Suppose all they do is vote. That's the only right they've got. But I've got 100% of them. How much of the total value of the company have I got. Now there's, an, a, funnily enough, a Privy Council case on this and their lordships. I don't know how they did it because they didn't seem to show any reasoning, but they said, oh, that's worth about, they're worth about 30% of the whole. Well, that's quite interesting because 30% might not be worth too much. You might be happy to keep them. That's very interesting. So if they, that you, you could effectively keep 100% of the voting rights and give the beneficiary 100% of the income. Uh, uh, and, and capital, but of course yeah. they can't get it. Exactly. Because yeah. you control everything. Yeah. No, that's... <laughs> the, I mean, quite, it sounds very Dickensian, doesn't it? It's uh, how, how to live on after your death. <laughs> I quite like the sound of that. <laughs> okay, brilliant. So what, what then, apart from... That, would you say, are the main differences between a bear trust and a discretion trust, apart from the fact that... Well, you... um, the thing with the bear trust, the, the owner of the asset for capital gains tax is the beneficiary, mm. and the, quite simple. And secondly, the owner of the income is a beneficiary. So you don't have any complications with trust rates of income tax or anything like that. So it has a delightful simplicity. And in some cases, um, is not a bad way of dealing with things. Because after all, you don't have any 10% 10-year charges, 6%, anything like that. Um, and you've probably rendered the value of what's in the beneficiary's hands very low so that he can give it away in due course to his family without there being any nasty results. Is, sorry, on that last point then, is because it's, it's low, is that because... Well, if, for example, if we've given him a small minority holding and he hasn't even got any votes, mm. so that whether he gets a dividend is entirely at your mercy, then really the value of what he's got is very low and, and what you've effectively done is killed the value, mm. uh, which can be very handy. And... Is that a good type of trust to have if, part, if, if wanting to keep that business uh, or property business in the hands of family for several generations or is it better just for passing down to that next I think I think if you really were certain that you, you had some assets which you thought long-term should stay forever in the family, mm. this kind of arrangement is very attractive. Uh, the, the penalty, really, is the fact that ultimately, if you sell it all off, there's probably going to be a huge capital gain. Mm. But that's in the future. And, and there may be ways of avoiding that when the time comes. And the other thing, we, we haven't mentioned with trust so far anything about the offshore element. It, it, you see, that, that's a tricky one, really. I mean, offshore uh, trusts do have their advantages. I mean, what, obviously, the first one is that trustees, by and large, won't be liable themselves to capital gains tax or income tax. Unfortunately, however, there's such a lot of avoidance tax rules going around that really and truly, if all the beneficiaries are UK residents, it's not particularly attractive, and it doesn't save any inheritance tax. However, matters become very different if you have got non-resident members of the family. 
because uh, if you channel income and gains, I mean, this is a very broad statement, if you channel the income and gains in their direction, they may well be able to take them free of UK tax. So then the whole thing becomes much more attractive. Mm. Um, and for inheritance tax, if a set law is domiciled when he makes the settlement, then really and truly it, it's of no great benefit. There will be inheritance tax. And inheritance tax is a difficult one to avoid because if it's chargeable, it goes on being chargeable in the hands of anyone who owns assets derived from the, the old assets. But nevertheless, um, there can be cases. And of course, the, there may in the family be an excluded property settlement. Someone who is non-domiciled may have created a family settlement in the past. And if they have, keep it alive at all costs as long as you can. Because uh, foreign property in an excluded property settlement is not liable to inheritance tax. Now, very often, you can keep settlements going longer than they otherwise might. For example, you can exercise a power of advancement so that the capital is tied up in a trust for longer than it otherwise would be. If it happens to be an excluded property trust, best thing you could ever have done because you go on being free of inheritance tax. Okay, so that's the excluded property trust, sorry. Yes, that's where you've got offshore property in the hands of trustees where the set law was non-domiciled when he made the settlement. Okay. That's so, very broadly. if yeah. I wanted to do that, I could go and for a few years and be domiciled somewhere else other than the UK. Oh, well, yes. I mean, of course, being domiciled somewhere else ain't as easy as all no. that because um, you've got this question of, is it your real home? Were you actually always intending to come back after a show of living in an island in Greece where, in fact, you were frightfully bored? So you have to be careful. I think, and, my and, uh, but I mean, and also if you, um, well, I, I won't go into all the complexities, but I mean, in principle, in some cases, there can be a very valuable result. Or it may be that one has a, a relative abroad who's quite wealthy. Uh, who may be happy to create a settlement for your family and there may be some other compensating way in which you can benefit him and uh, you know what you're doing is taking advantage of his non-domiciled status so yeah. always be on the watch for suitable non-domiciled members <laughs> of the family it's all very complex now <laughs> it is very complex but very interesting any, any anything you think we've missed then simon or haven't discussed uh, I, th I think we've covered most of the main things that are going to be applicable to most private companies, uh, parents giving assets, whether they be shares or property, to minors or to adult children, um, the capital gains tax holdover relief you can have. I think that most things, will, without getting too off on a tangent, I think we've covered most of, the, most of the tangible things that people will want to do or can do in the UK. Look, we haven't talked about employee benefit trusts. And, I mean, that's something I'm very interested in. It is worth just saying that if I put a controlling holding into an employee benefit trust for the benefit of my employees, I don't pay capital gains tax, even if, funnily enough, the trustees are offshore, which seems a very remarkable consequence. And I don't pay inheritance tax. And furthermore, and this really is quite remarkable, the retention of benefit rules don't apply. So you can still be a beneficiary. Now, you may say this sounds too good to be true. And in one sense, it is. In one sense, it isn't. For suppose, for example, that your family were employed in your family property business as, long as, as well as other people. Well, suppose your family genuinely work in the business, i.e. they're not just sitting there taking fat director's fees for doing nothing, they actually do something, then there's no reason in principle why you shouldn't say, well, I've got an employee benefit trust which benefits all the employees, including my family. What you will find is the revenue get very excited, although actually there's no law on this, and they say, 
if you create such a trust for the benefit of your family, because they're the only directors, it's really a family trust and not an employee benefit trust. Well, that's a very extreme view, in my opinion, and I think they're wrong. So long as you have members of the family genuinely in the business, there's no reason, in my opinion, why you shouldn't have an employee benefit trust. Well, it could be very valuable. But it's very interesting. Going in is marvelous. As I've just said, you know, no capital gains tax, no inheritance tax, and no worries about benefits reserved. Absolutely marvelous. So you're bound to say to me, well, there must be something wrong somewhere. And of course, the problem is when value comes out because the revenue, say, either under the case law or applying the disguised remuneration rules, what comes out is earnings. And that is true. But suppose you're one of these people we've been talking about already who say we actually want to keep the property there for generation after generation. Well, you could take out salaries and dividends. Also, this is worth thinking about, you could take out pensions. Pensions are not taxed as earnings. They're taxed separately. They're not caught by disguised remuneration. So you can have a very nice ongoing flow of benefits to the family with no inheritance tax, which is very attractive, either going in or no inheritance tax also every 10 years. So one doesn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. A lot of people have been getting very anti-employee benefit trusts, and it is absolutely true to say that they have been over-exploited. But in the proper hands, used for the proper purpose, they have enormous benefits. And, I mean, it's not just property companies. I mean, people recently, remember there was an example, I think it was in Richer Sounds, where the proprietor put 60% of the company into a trust for his employees. There's a section which deals with that for capital gains tax and their reliefs for inheritance tax. So it's quite an attractive way of keeping the business going forever and a day and often can be the right one. For example, if you put 60% into one of these employee ownership trusts and your family keep 40%, well, if the people who own 60% know what they're doing, and it's in their interest, after all, because they're the beneficiaries, the family might do very well. And also, there's no reason why, when you put the 60% in, you shouldn't get paid. And is there there any... any, um thing stopping you from being the majority shareholder still? Um, I think, yes, there is. Um, You've got, certainly in the case of an employee benefit trust, you've got to have control either immediately or within one year in the hands of the trustees. But but let, let, let this be said, that control. Equity might be largely with the family still. You could keep 90% of the equity, but give away 51% of the control. And of course, if, you, if you've got good managers, you might be quite happy doing that. Mm-hmm. In fact, it may be the last thing you want is greedy members of the family trying to run the business, but they can take the equity instead. Mm-hmm. So there are all sorts of interesting little permutations there, um, which shouldn't be overlooked. Very, very interesting. And one, one, one question that always crops up is people, um, I think, have a preconceived thought that trusts are only for high value assets yes is is there a a sort of minimum value to be putting in a trust whereby it's just non-efficient well that's a very interesting question i mean i think if you have professional trustees with a charging clause it's going to cost money to have a trust Mm -hmm. and that might put some people off because they've been if they don't want to be paid three or four thousand pounds a year um that that's quite a lot of money but you can actually be your own trustee mm-hmm. and the only thing you want then is your accountant to do the tax for the trust but you've probably got to do your tax anyhow so that won't be much extra charge and where you've got um families where you de- you are genuinely worried about giving capital to people too early mm-hmm. this could be the answer 
So I think, yes, even within a family, there are plenty of cases where you could have a, a small trust. Yeah, very, very interesting. Anything else then to, to add before we go that we haven't already covered? I think we've covered quite a bit there. I just to start back on the point with Andrew with, with the Richard Sounds example, obviously that was a, an employee share ownership trust. There are exclusions in there, so obviously the, I think there's a 5% exclusion if you own more than the shareholding, but there's also small, small benefits where you can pay out £3,600 a year tax-free to your employees. Mm. Yes. So if yeah. you have many employees, yeah. that, that's quite a good, and you get tax relief for that in the company as well. So there's lots of other options. And I, I like yeah. the pension point you mentioned before as well. I thought that was that was very interesting. Which one, sorry? The pension point as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, what that was one general last point I was going to make. A lot of people now will say, "Look, I might live to a hundred. I mean, people are doing it, but." Mm far more people are attaining that age than ever used to. If I attain that age, I might need all sorts of medical care, etc., etc. So I want to be pretty careful before I give away too much in my lifetime. And the ungrateful children who are living 500 miles away just leave me where I am. So one rule I would say to everyone, don't overlook getting your pension sorted out. There is one point on this which is very, very valuable, and that is that if a company undertakes simply as a matter of contract, no separation of assets, it simply says, um, look, when you're all 70, um, I'm going to pay you a pension of X. The promise to give away that pension could give rise to an immediate deduction for corporation tax, even though the pension doesn't become payable till later. And so you're getting a deduction, but you're also creating something in your favor, which means that you can give away assets because you've got the security in the form of the pension. And in many cases, that could be a far more valuable pension than anything you go and spend a lot of money on with a pension consultant. Because we all know what happens if you have money in a pension, in, a, in some kind of approved pension fund. If you have to buy an annuity, you never get anything at all. And, um, you know, you compare an awful lot of money and get very little out of it. So okay. getting a pension is important. Don't overlook a self-made private pension within your own company. Well, that's what I was about to say, especially with SIPs and, and SAS pensions now being able to hold commercial property as well this could it's certainly something that i know people are talking a lot about in um, in property circles anyway uh, yes this, this, put, the, put this, the factory in 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 the um in 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 the pension fund yeah 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 um so it's definitely something that i think a lot of people will be very very interested to hear no i think probably i can't think of anything more at the moment so simon have you have you done your, your bit, do you think? Things you want to cover today, so yeah, I think we're... Uh... On, on that happy note, we'll finish. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. It's been, been great, and uh, look forward to the next one. Okay. okay, thank you. Bye. Bye. Please join me next time for more detailed discussions about property on The Rodcast. Mm-hmm.